I'm Steve Clark, and a very warm welcome to Brooklands this evening. As I always say, thank you for being here and thank you for supporting the Trust. I'm glad you enjoyed the fire one tonight. I never know quite what they're going to show until I get out here. So I'm not too sure quite what the next one will be. Um, I have to admit, ladies and gentlemen, I've been a great admirer of our guests' uh, literary work over the years. And I was delighted when Morris agreed to join us for the James Hunt evening at 40 back in 2016. It only seems like yesterday, but 2016, wow. We were here to celebrate James winning the uh, World Championship 40 years ago in 1976. I was even more delighted when Harry um, suggested a collaboration uh, with Morris to talk about his 40 years in Formula One and uh, his journalism. So will you please give a very warm welcome to Harry Sherrard and Morris Hamilton. So, thank you, Steve, and again, thank you everybody very much indeed for uh, coming along this evening. You okay now, Morris? Yeah? Yeah, my, my mic's come adrift already. <laughs> okay, everybody here, Morris, okay? Hello, yes, thank you very much for coming. Very good to see you all. Uh, thank you very much for coming. Can you hear me? Yes, you can. Okay, we're good. Good to go. So, Morris, let's, let's kick off. So, you're, you're born in Northern Ireland. Um, these days, of course, Northern Ireland's a bit of a backwater as far as four-wheel motorsport is concerned, but... In the 1950s, when you were growing up, there were some uh, major international races there. Indeed, there were, uh, one of which was the uh, Tourist Trophy. And it used to be run on the old Ard circuit um, and south of Belfast. And my dad, who was a Boy Scout, uh, was a runner. In those days, the communications between marshals was done by Boy Scouts, and he was one of them. So he got motorsport into his blood. And... Um, he took me when I was age seven to the TT had then moved to Dundrod, which was a road circuit uh, to the north of Belfast. And uh, it was uh, my first motor race. And you can imagine that if this is your first motor race, uh, it really is quite something. Because if you look at the picture here, uh, if I can, that little fellow up there, I'm sorry if you can't see it on the screens on the side, but that little fellow with the schoolboy cap on is me. Uh, <laughs> and this is Bob Gerrard's. Uh, Fraser Nash, and what's happening is that the Red X, you can see here, my uncle Derek, he was a, an agent for Red X, and so he, they had some sort of association with the, the race, so they got a little pit, and my dad, who's going to come into this story quite a bit, is there, the man in the peak cap, so they took me uh, to the CT, and you can imagine, this is your first motor race, it's a Le Mans start, and the whole thing, uh, you had all the big stars there, you had uh, you know, Fangio and the rest of it, and I had, my dad gave me an autograph book, which of course was just for him, wasn't it? But I would be shoved forward. Could we have an autograph just for the boy, just for the boy, not an autograph. <laughs> so uh, I was immediately drawn to it. They, just standing on that pit counter, the smell, the noise, the racing, the whole bit, and I just thought, well, this is absolutely wonderful. That was, that was the start of it all. So, so, as we said, major international races took, uh, took, took place then. As you said, your, your, your dad comes into the story then in, uh, in, in another race that took place in it, it, That's right. The TT uh, went on up until 1955 when there was a bad accident at Dundrod. Um, and in the, in the 55 TT, again, I was there, but I was uh, stationed this time in the grandstand opposite of my granddad. Uh, but my dad was in the pits with Uncle Derek. They'd, they'd wangled their way in again. 
And when the race had uh, finished, we, we, we met up, and Dad says, because the Mercedes team were there against Jaguar, so the, the wonderful 300 SLR of a Sterling Moss driving, which actually won the race. And my dad says, uh, he says, I got into the Mercedes pit. And we said, you're kidding. That's the last place you can get into. Mercedes, Alfred Neubauer there. They had black curtains across the back. It was all sealed off, whereas every other pit you could get into. But Mercedes, we said, no, come on, you're having us on. Anyway, the following week, I think it was Motor Magazine, published a picture. And this is Moss's last pit stop. He's, uh, he's, he's torn the right rear, the track surface that's done drawn was very abrasive. And he's torn the right rear, that, and they're about to change it. And the, the photographer's got this shot of him making a stop. And here, this man is, is, oh, I've lost it. Up in the top, there he is. That's him, that's my dad. He's actually, <laughs> he's actually got, and we, and we don't know how he did it. And I was, un, unknown to me, I was actually going to learn from that because in later years, I was going to blag my way into the pits as well, but I'm blaming him for it because that's what he did. <laughs> he still don't know how he did it. So, so, so Morris, you obviously com completed your schooling in Northern Ireland, and uh, what, what kind of career did you follow in the, the early years of your, your working life? Oh, uh, well, um, not very good, actually. I was a trainee accountant, failed. I was a trainee quantity surveyor, failed. <laughs> Four years of that, and hated it. And then uh, I took a test, and uh, they found that I should actually be talking to people, marketing and stuff like that, and also writing came up quite high in it. But I went to sell cars for a company called Isaac and New in Belfast, which was uh, from Mercedes through to BMWs, Volkswagens, and so on. So I was actually selling cars, so that was actually a lot better, a lot more fun. So, so, so like you in my early days living in Northern Ireland, I felt a bit distant from motor racing, so I applied to English universities and moved over here to uh, get a lot closer. So presumably you were thinking along the, the, the same lines? Yeah, I was. I mean, I could see there, was, with the greatest respect to Northern Ireland, there was just no future in, uh, in, in being involved in motor racing there. I could see that whatever it was I wanted to do, I mean, I wasn't going to be a driver. I'm not mechanically minded, and so I, I couldn't be a mechanic. So I didn't know what I was going to do, but the one thing to be sure was to get over to England somehow. And uh, there was a, uh, I used to go to um, races in England quite a bit with my mate who was the, the, the uh, sales manager uh, at Isaac News and we would uh, take a demonstrator, one of the demonstrators, put it on the boat and go across to Oldham Park to the Gold Cup or whatever was on, put it back on the boat on Sunday night and sneak back up into work on Monday morning and they didn't know that we'd been abroad with the Volkswagen demonstrator. <laughs> Uh, 1969, we'd been to the Gold Cup, and we'd done the usual trick, uh, came back on the Sunday night ferry, tried to drive up to work on the Monday morning, and couldn't. And that was because it was the first weekend of the Troubles, which, as you will know well, Harry, lasted for 30 years, but this was the start of it, and my mate Tim and I knew that this was not going to end tomorrow, so we decided that, uh, I decided the time was right to come to England, and I got a job with Olivetti, selling office equipment in West Ealing, so, in England. So that, that obviously enabled you to go and attend a lot of races around, uh, around the UK then at the, at the weekends and so forth. But I think you were, you were telling me then that um, you, you weren't obviously writing at that stage, but there was quite a pivotal weekend when you went down to Monaco in 19, uh, 1973. Yes. So uh, what, what, what happened over that weekend? Well, I'd, I'd been, first of all, in 68, before I moved to England, uh, I took a page in my trip uh, to Monaco with my mate Tim, 
Uh, and if you be believe this, it was a coach trip from Victoria Station. It took in the Nürburgring 1000 Ks and then coach on down to Monaco and back. And I think that for the princely sum of 42 guineas for, <laughs> for a fortnight away. And it was absolutely magic. I just loved the ring, uh, the 1000 Ks. We walked out to Flugplatz and came back. Then Monaco itself was just mind-blowing because we stayed in the Hotel Europe where, by sheer luck for us, the McLaren team were underneath, garage underneath, in those days they were, and Bruce and Denny were staying in the hotel and all the mechanics uh, were there. And so I persuaded my dad, I said, Dad, you've got to come to the Monaco Grand Prix, you really must. So he and I went in 73. And I'm not living in England, but I'm still wondering how on earth to get involved in this business. So. Uh, I say to my dad, you know, I, I, I see these guys out on the track and they've got armbands on, you know, journalists. And I say, how do, you, how do you get to be one of those? And I'm thinking, I wonder if I could write anything. I remember that report said, uh, you know, I might be quite good at writing, but I, I was no good at it at school. I got, no, uh, I got an O level and got out quick before they caught on, so I, would, I didn't, didn't go any further at school. So I thought, one thing I could do is, uh, while well, these journalists that I can see on the track are going to write about the race report, why don't I write a piece about what it's like to be here as a, as a fan? Uh, and it was again a page in my trip, but this time we flew. Uh, and just to go through the whole experience and go to the tip-top bar and who do you see and what's it like and the excitement and so on. So I made notes over the course of the weekend. And uh, in the end, I had bits of paper everywhere because there was just so much going on at Monaco. Got home and got my little Olivetti portable typewriter out and tapped out this story. And then I thought, wonder what to do with this. So I had a very good mate uh, who was as keen as I was, and I gave it to him and said, look, somebody's given me this. Uh, what do you think? Because I wanted to know what he thought. And he read it and he said, well, it's bloody good, mate. I thought, okay. So then I sent it to all the magazines, Motorsport, Autosport, you name it. No responsibility. I thought the phone was going to ring next week. No. It doesn't work like that. Nothing. So I thought, right, you're supposed to be a salesman. You're supposed to be out selling. Why don't you go and sell yourself? So I went to Standard House in Bond Hill Street where uh, Motorsport was and Motoring News. And um, I asked to speak to Mr. T, the, the editor of Motorsport. And the little lady came out and she said, um, Mr. T doesn't see people, doesn't agree, because people write to him, I suppose have written to me, yes, people write to him and sometimes what they say to him is not very nice, she said. <laughs> so I thought, okay, then I've got nowhere there. So then there was a magazine that had started up called Competition Car. It was in Wood Street in Kingston upon Thames and I went to them. I liked it because it was just full of young people and it was just all go, it was a very exciting magazine. And I knocked and I just opened the door. The door, the, the, the office for, was, was right there on the door. And I walked in and there they all were. And there was this little fella in a leather jacket smoking a cigarette. And I said, can I speak to the editor, a guy called Nigel Roebuck? And he said, it's me. I'm Nigel Roebuck. Who are you? I said, I'm Morris Hamilton. I sent you. But, oh, yes, he says. Yes, he said, we've got it. He said, yeah, we're going to publish it. So my very first piece was published in Competition Car in March, March 1974. That's, that's the cover from, the, uh, from, from that magazine. That's it, and that was the first step uh, forward. So I got in, I got something published, I'd met Nigel Roebuck, met Quentin Spurring, who also worked there, and a couple of other journalists. Peter Windsor was, was contributing to it. 
and I just clung on to them like mad. And if they were going to go to the Dutch Grand Prix or the Belgian Grand Prix, can I come with you? And they said, I won't, I won't make any trouble. I'll, I'll be good as gold. And so uh, I went with them and started to meet. They introduced me to various people. But of course, I was still very much on the outside. But I think then you, you, you then did start to write some reports for relatively minor races in, uh, oh, yeah. in, in the UK, etc. Yeah, I did. Basically, Lyndon Hill and so forth. Yeah, yeah, I did. I went, um, uh, Quentin Spurring, who was then the editor of Autosport, said to me, look, you should start doing some serious stuff. He said, doing club reports. Mm -hmm. He said, say, on a bank holiday weekend, we'll have eight or nine race meetings, and nobody wants to do the very small ones. Do you want to go there? I said, OK. So my very first one was uh, Lyndon Hill. Uh, a 750 motor club event, which was fantastic, except there were seven races, bang, 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 one after the other. And I had to go and make my notes, go back, type it all out on the typewriter, and the results were so time-consuming. You, you had to get the commas and the semicolons in the right place. By two o'clock in the morning, it's the last thing you want to be doing. Put it in an envelope, drove up to London, through the letterbox, drove home, then off again as a salesman the next day. But yeah. that's, that's where that started. Yeah, so obviously long before the days, days of email, you had to do the, uh, the physical delivery and put, put it through the, through the letterbox. Yeah. So um, presumably at this stage then you were trying to expand your horizons, trying to, trying to look to, uh, to Europe. And I think they're a little bit more um, particular about their press accreditation, a bit more uh, formal. So um, how, how, how did that go when you, when you tried to get into the European scene? Harry, it just seemed impossible. I mean, how on earth are you going to get into uh, the, the, the German Grand Prix or the Monaco Grand Prix if you have no credentials? And I was told that what you need, first of all, is when you go to Germany or wherever it might be, you need to present them with a credential from your national motoring authority, which in my case, obviously, was the RAC MSA. So I wrote to them and said, can I have a British press credential, please? And they said, they replied and said, no. <laughs> what do you mean, no? And they said, well, are you a bona fide journalist? And I said, no, but I want to be, so this is going to help me. And they said, well, I'm sorry, we can't give you a press credential unless you're a bona fide journalist. I said, well, how in the hell am I supposed to get... The, the... Yeah, and yeah, they, said, the they yeah. said, sorry, up to you. So I'm thinking, what do I do now? So I'm going through Victoria Station one day, and uh, it's the middle of the week, it must have been quiet, and there was an exhibition on the concourse for security passes. Now, we were talking here, we're now into about 1975-ish, 76, 75. And in those days, security isn't what it is now. You know, we've all got our security pass. But then, it was very new, the little laminated pass. And I was looking at these, and the guy, it was quiet, nothing going on, so he came up and he said, can I help you, sir? And I said, oh, yeah, yeah, I think possibly you could. And he said, oh, how many employees do you have? And I said, one. And he said, sorry, uh, uh, do I detect an Irish accent? I mean, you, 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 one employee, why do you want security pass? I said, actually, I don't want a security pass. What I want you to do is help me make what looks like a press credential. <laughs> and he liked the idea. And he said, all right, yeah, okay, come on, let's do it, let's do it. So we sat down. And he says, um, right, your name, Morris Hamilton. I've got a picture. We, I went to the machine, got a picture taken. He said, where do you live? And I said, uh, Harrow Road West, Dorking. And he said, hmm. <laughs> I said, uh, hang on a minute. I said, I'm sure a number of you in the room know a guy called Tony Tobias. He's a guy who's been, he was in ad, motorsport advertising for donkey's years. Really enthusiastic. And his mum 
ran a sweet shop in King's Road. <laughs> so I rang Tony and I said, Tony, could I borrow your mum's sweet shop? And I explained what, he went, oh yeah, 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 yeah. And here's the telephone number, 352-8886. Great, so we put all that on. And on the back then we put uh, motor racing news service, we called it. This is it here. Just, he said, you've got to have a title. I said, oh Christ, I don't know. Yeah, all right, motor racing news service, that sounds good. Uh, and then we added uh, publications I might be working for, might. So we put Autosport Japan, Autosprint, Autoebdo, Autoebdo, I'd never written for any of them. And I thought, just to cover myself in case uh, I get holed up before officials, I better try and make it to sound like a joke. So at the bottom we put cart and track, cart as in and track, brackets Ireland. So I could pretend it was a joke, you see. But we had it made. And without a word of a lie and a lot of talking by me, I used that pass to get in. And here's the press accreditation. The 1976 Monaco Grand Prix. It's got Morris Hamilton Motor Racing News Service on it. A lot of this, a lot of talk. My cuttings from Lydon Hill. That cutting from, uh, from the Motorsport uh, Motor Competition Car Magazine. And I got me a press pass there and in Germany. And then once you're on the inside, people, the journalists that you want to see, say, how'd you get here? And you said, you tell the story and they go, ah, fair enough, okay. You've sort of passed one of the tests. And that started to open a lot of doors having done that. Thanks. And that cost 50p, by the way. <laughs> the best 50p I've ever spent. And I'd love to thank the man if I ever saw him again. So, so Morris, yeah, so we're now into the mid-1970s and you're obviously onto, onto a bit of a roll. Um, and did there come a specific moment when you decided then to take the plunge and move into motorsport journalism full-time then? Yes, Harry, there, there definitely was. Um, I got into 76 and while I was getting more and more work, uh, people were saying, yeah, but you're still a salesman. At that time I was selling plastic pipe for Osma Plastics. Uh, the story behind that is because I had given me an estate car and I could go where I liked and that. My territory was the southeast of England, so I would work like crazy Monday to Thursday and then on Friday morning go off to Zolder or something in their car with their petrol. But I was still a salesman and they said, look, you've really got to make the move. It so happened I went home and my dad, bless him, he was a, a house builder and he'd uh, started the company up from nothing and done very well. And he said, uh, that Christmas I was home, I'm going to retire. If you want to come into the company, he said, you've got to decide, are you going to do this motor racing or are you going to come back? And he, being a fan, was not giving me an ultimatum. He was just sort of saying, which way do you want to go? So I thought about it and I thought, I'm going to go the motor racing route. So I had made friends along the way with a guy called Ian Young, uh, who you see here. Uh, and he was a freelance at East Horsley. He took me under his wing. Um, he was highly respected. 31 years wrote a column for Autocar uh, on the grid, straight from the grid or on the grid as it was later called. So he offered me a job. Um, he couldn't pay me much, but he said, uh, I'm doing work for you. Because uh, at, at East Horsley, he was close to the Tyrrell team uh, down at Ockham. And he was doing a lot of work for them, for ELF, for First National City, Travellers Checks, who were their sponsors. So what he did, bless him, was he would be paid by ELF 
to go to the races, uh, business class or first class. There was no business class then, it was first class. And he would come economy and use the money to take me with him. So he would take me to the races. And so I thought, right, I'm going to become a full-time journalist. We went to the golf club at Effingham, New Year's Eve, 76, 77, shook hands, and that's when I became a professional journalist from the so, 1st of January. And then I think he gave you a, a specific project then to work on at, uh, at a fairly uh, important time in the, in the life of one, uh, one James Hunt. That's right. Uh, this, in 1977, we have James Hunt, reigning world champion. And uh, fanzines then were very new, and this was certainly the first ever, to my knowledge, uh, motorsport fanzine. And Ian got the contract to write the editorial, to, to write it, and he, sub, he got me to do most of it. So it meant that I was uh, working with James Hunt on the James Hunt magazine during the 1977 season, going to about 80% of the races with, um, with Ian. So I was well in. So I know several people who worked with, with, with James Hunt during that era and didn't necessarily find him the, the shall we say, the easiest people to, uh, to work with. How did you find your, your working relationship? Uh, it was awful. <laughs> uh, it really was. I mean, I, I had... You, you were a young journalist, I guess. Yeah, yeah. I, it was my first year. He didn't really know me from Adam. Um, and I'd been so looking forward to it because, you know, James Hunt, I'd watched him race. I'd been, I'd been to Canada, to Mossport and Watkins again in 76 two great races by him, and been hanging around on the fringe. But to work with him, uh, the problem was that James uh, just didn't like all the trappings that came with being world champion. And uh, he wanted to go out and have a good time, can't blame him for that. But I would uh, you know, go to, so I'd say to him, look, this is for you. I, went to, I remember going to Carl Army and saying, look, uh, I'm Morris Hamilton, I'm doing your magazine. Oh yes, yes, can I come and interview? Yes, yes, come after practice. Go after practice, he's not there. He's down at, back down at the Kailami Ranch with some woman, isn't he? And so you see the next morning, and, oh, sorry, sorry, yeah, uh, and then it would be a meeting. And then he, w he would do the interview with all his little sycophantic mates. Uh -huh. And it, it was just it was awful. I, I, I hated it. Still a, a learning curve, though, I guess. I had to do it. I had to, you know, and I said to Ian, what do I do? He said, well, you know, if he, take what he tells you, but we'll make the rest up if he doesn't <laughs> want to talk to you. So we did. <laughs> So I think another, another big moment in, in 1978, we've talked about your work with Autosport and the, uh, the specialist magazines, but um, you of course are equally well known around the world as the, uh, the motorsport correspondent of uh, national newspapers. I think that began with The Guardian in 1978, so how did, how did that come about? Uh, There's a guy called Eric Dimmock, um, was the motorsport correspondent for The Guardian, had been for 12 years, and uh, he said, look, I'm standing down, I want to move on to something else. Um, uh, would you, and they're going to ask me, he said, the problem is with newspapers is that they, they know all about football, they know about all the big sports, cricket, but they don't know anything about motor racing, the, the, the sports editors, and they will ask me to recommend somebody. And he says, I think you're a likely lad. And I said, well, I really could do with having a handle to my name, because while I was being uh, a full-time professional journalist, I was Morris Hamilton, end of, that's it, so, so what? Mm -hmm. But if you get a handle to your name, suddenly doors open. So anyway... He said, uh, I said, I don't know about newspapers. Um, what are we going to do? He said, come with me. He said, we'll, we'll wing it, we'll wing it. So we went to the interview and with a sports editor of The Guardian, who was a pompous little man who would like to talk about himself and about his road cars and about the great road car he had. And he casually said at one point, I showed him all my cuttings, and he casually said, you've written for a newspaper before. And I said, yeah, yeah, I have, yeah. 
which if he'd asked me closely, it would have been to put an ad for the sale of my bicycle in my local paper. That was as, that was as far as I'd ever got for writing for a newspaper. So I got the job. And I thought, great, a motorsport correspondent for The Guardian. So it must have been quite a moment seeing your first piece in a, in a, in a well-known national newspaper. Uh, well, it would have been if I'd seen it. Uh, the thing was that the first pieces I sent in didn't get in, didn't go in. And then the pieces that did go in were rewritten. And I thought, oh, bloody hell, they're catching me out here. You know, this is really, really difficult. So uh, I, I went into the office and I noticed that it was the sub-editors that ran the show. Um, while the little pompous little sports editor was out having a long lunch, the sub-editors sit around a big table and they would dictate everything. So I was just, I was pretending to do something and I was watching what happened. And they, the sports editor would come back from lunch, we've got the football, and they'd say, yeah, we got it. Was it any good? Yeah, excellent, good. Got the hockey? Yeah, we got that. Was it, it was rubbish? And so they would be telling the sports editor what's going on. And these guys were key, the sub-editors. Half past seven, first edition goes, they're gone, into the pub before the second edition. So I ran into the pub, and there's a couple of them that i sort of spoken to, and I said to one of them, look, um, I'm in a spot of bother here. And they said, yeah, we know, we've noticed. <laughs> you don't know what you're doing, do you? And I said, no, I don't, I've, I've no idea. And they said, well, you've taken the first step, said, by admitting it, because you wouldn't believe the number of correspondents who don't admit it. So what you want to do is this, this, and this, and he gave me a lot of key things, like such as one very simple thing. Your introductory paragraph, is to be who, what, where, when. We don't want you to be William Wordsworth trying to impress us with some wonderful prose. We just want the facts. And if we ask for 450 words, we want 450 to fill the space we've got. Not 490, not 350, 450. Got that? Right. And from then on, I just kept in touch with them and it improved and improved and I managed to hang on to the job. Terrific. So, so another uh, string to your bow, of course, is uh, broadcasting. And uh, you became uh, well-known in broadcasting initially, I think, on uh, Radio 4, and then it went on into Ra Radio 5 Live. Uh, yeah, it was Radio, Radio 2. Radio 2 initially. First, yeah. yeah. Um, in those days, they, Simon Taylor would do um, the start, the finish, for about a minute, and they would come on every news bulletin on the hour and a half hour, 30 seconds of an update, and that's all he would get. They began to give him a bit more and more and more. And I would be up with Simon because in those days, we, uh, when you're at races, they didn't have the, the computer screening that we've got now with all the positions. You had to keep a lap chart, either looking out the press room window or standing trackside and just keep a lap chart of what was going on. And I would keep a lap chart for Simon because that way I could see the track out the commentary box window, I could see the TV pictures and it would help me write my story, so I would do that. So I was up with him all the time. And at Imola in 87, uh, they said, Simon, before the start of the race, look, there's not a lot of sport on this, this uh, Sunday. We're going to come to you quite a bit this afternoon. Um, no disrespect, Simon, but, you know, is there another voice? Is there if you could, somebody else you could have come with you? And Simon looked around and said, would you like to do it? And I said, uh, uh, yeah, why not? And so luckily, you know, I only had a couple of hours. So I didn't have time to worry or think about it. We're straight into it. And so I'm Simon's um, summarizer, they're called. The guy who sort of explains what's going on, allegedly. So that's what I did. And, and you're still doing, doing radio commentaries to, to, to this day on Radio Well, uh, not so much now, I know. But I, I certainly did it for 20 years. And just, just oh. going back to that first one, um, 
87 Imola was the year that Gerhard Berger had an enormous accident in the Ferrari Colt fire. I remember that Minton fire, yeah. And I thought, gee, we were live, and I thought, my God, this is my first race. And I thought he was dead. I thought, well, how, how do you deal with this? What, what, what were we going to say? I mean, I've never been so pleased to see Gerhard get out and walk away from that because I thought this is going to be the real test. But uh, yeah, I did it for another 20 years and loved it. So, so you dipped your toe in the water as a driver. Got you here at the Jim, Jim Russell uh, Racing School at, at, at Snetterton, and here's uh, here's here's Morris Hamilton on the on the on the front row of the grid. Outside of the front row, yeah, and that's as good as it ever got. Yeah. <laughs> I, I learned from, the deal here was um, I wanted to drive. I wanted to drive just to experience it, to go into races and find out what the drivers feel like, and to go through the whole motions of a, a race day. Uh, and like there at that moment, my left foot shaking like buggery on the clutch. You cannot believe what it's like. Um, just to understand all that. Uh, but I found out that uh, you know, I wasn't a particularly quick driver, but that wasn't the point. So I said to Jim Russell, look, can I come and write a story about you, uh, about the course? If you give me the course free, I'll do my, my lodgings, but I'll get this story published worldwide, which is the deal we did. Uh -huh, uh -huh. And they were, they were good to their word. They gave me an overseas course for a week. Um, which was fantastic fun. Really loved it. I loved the camaraderie and, and the driving, but it just, I just didn't happen to be quick. But um, it, as, a, as a little aside to, to this, while I'm, while I'm doing that, the guys have done previous overseas courses hang about. They don't want to go home because they've come from all around the world. And they found little jobs in Attleborough to do. And one of them was a guy called Joe Ricciardo, who's Daniel's father. And I got to know him. And uh, he was a wild man. He's curly hair and he would lead races and spin off. Um, and we kept in touch, uh, Joe and I, just in those days, you know, there was no emails or anything like that. And we'd get an air letter, the old fashioned air letter, once a year. How are you doing? This is what I'm up to. Then emails come in and, oh, I'm married now, he says. And then, oh, I've got a boy. Oh, well done. Congratulations. I go to Adelaide for the very first Australian Grand Prix in 1985. Somebody taps me on the shoulder, says, there's somebody at the door, would like to see you. I go out, it's Joe, his wife Grace, and this little kid in uh, a buggy, and it's Daniel. And, uh, Amazing connection. Yeah. So, okay, so as, as years go by, you're getting working more and more with uh, Formula One teams and drivers. This is obviously with, uh, with, with Ken Tyrrell, and we have a bit of a career overlap, because I, I raced with Derek Daly in the uh, Goodwood Revival in, 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 in 2012, but he was telling me that you, uh, you ghosted a column for him in one of the, uh, the Irish newspapers during his, uh, his Formula One career. It was great. I mean, I tried. One of the pieces of advice that Ian Young gave me was, you know, not to get too close to a driver because he'd experienced it with Bruce McLaren. He'd, Ian had come to the UK as Bruce's secretary and got very close to Bruce, and then Bruce was killed in June 1970. And uh, he said the lesson I learned from that is not to get too close. So he said, be good friends, but don't live in their pockets. And with Derek Daly coming in being an Irishman, we got on like a house and fire, and it was a great insight to me but we kept we kept each other at arm's length but he was a, a lovely guy and great for me to talk to and of course then driving for Tyrrell which was with as I said with Ian Young just down the road being around with Ken was just the most fantastic experience so there was a great combination that those three those two guys together. So D Derek was then telling me that um, after the Tyrrell drive he then got got Guinness sponsorship for, for the march <laughs> And um, unusually, the, uh, the the launch of the Guinness sponsored march was in the uh, the Guinness Brewery in Dublin. Oh my God! So that, that sounds like a recipe for a, for a good night. Best car launch I've ever been to. Wonder why? <laughs> <laughs>
As, as you might know, I'm very fond of Guinness, but I, we went in. A bunch of us were flown over from, from England, uh, newspaper guys, about six of us. Guinness Brewery launches at 7 o'clock in the evening. You've never seen anything like it. Up into this lounge. And the bar, I'm not kidding, the bar was the width of this, well, longer, twice the width of this stage. And it was black with pints of Guinness. I've never seen so much Guinness in my life. And of course, in the brewery, it, it is beautiful. It's like milk. And the thing was, being in Dublin, you know, it's supposed to be for the press. Well, in Ireland, every Tom, Dick and Seamus had worked his way in. <laughs> I sure I know the mother of the sports editor of the Daily of the Sunday Telegraph. She says this is going on. She says it'll be all right. Yeah. And they're all, ah, it's a fine car, that there. And they, and, the, and they couldn't. The thing was, the car, the march was in the room next door. They couldn't get anybody in to look at it. Ah, oh, it's a fine car. All right, Derek, you got there. That's great. Oh, lovely, lovely. So we had loads of Guinness, and we were on the, on the last flight back. So we'll have one in the, in the airport just for the road, you know, which is stupid. And my last lasting memory of that flight was an Aer Lingus 737. It got into Heathrow, last flight in, 11 o'clock, whenever it was. And it wasn't uh, by a point, it was, it was down some steps. And one of the British press fell from the top to the bottom of the steps. <laughs> how we got home, I don't know. I have no idea how we got home. Absolutely none. Yeah, so, so this is you with, with uh, Derek and obviously a card there that he signed for you. But um, back in the days you were working with him, Derek had a, had a, had a great head of hair on him, I must, I must say. Um, yeah. Exactly 30 years later, uh, when I raced with Derek in uh, the Goodwood Revival, he'd, he'd changed his appearance somewhat. <laughs> <laughs> Haven't we all? Yeah. So here, here we have you uh, seemingly conducting an interview with Nicky Lauda, not in a very sort of comfortable sort of situation, standing in the pits. What, what's, what's going on there? This is uh, Detroit, 1982. And the figure in between us is the late Alan Henry, uh, who was very close to Nicky. And I wanted to interview Nicky uh, for whatever it was I was writing for. And Alan had said to me, I know him well, I'll introduce you and then we can arrange to go and see him. So this is in between practice sessions on the first day at Detroit. And um, Alan introduced me to him and I said, look, can I come and see you? I want to do an interview. And typical Nicky, fortunately Alan had warned me that this might happen. Typical Nicky, puts you on your metal straight away. He goes, right, okay, start, now. <laughs> and in between sessions, luckily I've got my tape recorder in my hand and I'm just getting rid of my bag and I've got my questions in my head because he just wants to see if you're any good or not, and so I knew this was coming. And it was the start of, uh, we'll, we'll come on to it later, but it was the start of a fantastic relationship with uh, Nicky because I did many interviews with him over the years, but that was the, the very first one. The very first one, and again, on, on, on a bit of a learning curve and uh, mm. one, one of a kind, really, Nicky Lauda. But well, as you said, we'll, we'll come back to him later on. So obviously the days long before word processors and uh, email and all the rest of it, uh, e even in those eras, it still was manual uh, t typewriters and so forth. Yep. Type typing out your stories. Yep. Yeah. And how did you then get the story then transmitted back into the uh, if, you're, if you're writing them for the for the dailies or the, the, the oh, weekly newspapers? That 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 was a, a game in itself because you'd either handwrite your story or, t or type it out, whatever way you wanted to do it. But to get it back to the newspaper in London. You had to phone the story across to a copy taker. And this a copy taker is somebody who would sit with a headset on, typewriter in a room in the newspaper office, and take calls as they came. So it might be politics, 
politics story, and then you might be next, motorsport, and the next one um, might be foreign news, you never knew. So they, did, they weren't interested in what you were doing. But you had to queue up. Obviously, your call was going to take 20 minutes, so it had to be transfer charge or collect. So you had to go through the telephonist at the circuit and book the call, and all the time it's ticking away. And the first edition's calling, and they're filling around, there's some old telephonist, and they get through, and you get through to the copy ticker in London, and you prayed that it would be a good one. Because a good one would, would just listen to you, was yes, mm hmm, yep, okay, yeah, got that. And some of them were just utterly useless. They would, they uh, we have here at a, on, on the, uh, a cartoon uh, d d depiction of one of the, uh, one of the copy takers. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Done by my, the late Jim Bamber, who I work closely with at, at Autocourse Annual. Um, and I told him a story about them, and he produced this for me. And uh, my on-off relationship with Nigel Mansell, I think, uh, summed that up. But you would be in their hands. And um, if they weren't interested in what you were doing, they would just type out anything. And, and uh, the sub-editors would then had to pick that up. And of course, with my accent, of course, it led to one or two little anomalies, like um, uh, when Williams in... Believe it or not, in uh, 83, the end of 83, they changed engines before the end of the season. Uh, they went from the Cosworth to the Honda. And the sub-editors are pretty good because they, they know what to pick up. And so, uh, but they weren't ready for a, uh, a Williams Honda. And so I'm dictating my story of Williams Honda. And I swear, to, I've got the cutting somewhere. It appeared in The Guardian as Keke Rosberg was driving a Williams Humber. <laughs> <laughs> Imagine the chrome wind, the wing mirrors, the <laughs> walnut dash, cigarette. Uh, yes. So, so like, likewise, um, obviously, uh, lap charts are all computerised these days. There's a lap chart that you, you've, you've yep. produced here, I think, uh, in the uh, er, er, early 80s, obviously, 82, 83. Yep. Uh, and again, it was a very uh, meticulous exercise, write, writing down all the, uh, the cars as they went past lap after lap. Yeah, you had to, because, you know, when you're going to write your report afterwards, this is the story of, of your race report. So there's little annotations that just they mean various things where various lines are drawn, little notes at the bottom, uh, and just to help you do it. But just to the first few laps, because they're coming past so fast, you do all that in a scrap of paper, just, just writing, as not, not looking down at the paper, just writing the numbers down and then transfer them quickly before they came around to start lap two into the uh, lap chart. But that was essential. If you didn't have that, you know, after 72 laps, you'd never remember what happened in lap 11. Yeah, so yeah of course, all, all done electronically these days, of course. Oh, yeah, not a problem. No, it's all printed out for them. But your, your ability as a lap chart taker, you were, you, were, you were snapped up at this event by, by the Williams team. I think that's you on the right-hand side there. Sort of a, that's right. Co-opted into Williams' team. Yeah, that, that, that was... Um, this is Las Vegas, 1982. Um, Keke Rosberg is going for the championship. And uh, Frank always kept the lap chart. He sat on, if you remember, the little deck chair, the little folding chair he would sit on, on a packing case by the pit wall and assiduously keep the lap chart and tell them what to put on the pit boards and so on. He called me in and he said, um, listen, he said, because it's the championship, I don't want to keep the lap chart. I'll be too busy keeping an eye on things. Would you keep our lap chart? World championship decider uh, in Las Vegas in the heat. Um, by the pit wall with the Williams team. You're kidding. I, I, I said, okay. And I was chipping myself not to put too fine a point on it that I would get it wrong because, you know, uh, it was a long race in the heat and if something happened, 
because um, it wasn't a done deal for Keke by any means. No, no. And I had to make sure, and there were pit stops, and I had to make sure that they, it, it worked out all right, but it was um, a big test. And also, I have to say, very nice of Frank to ask mm -hmm. me to do it. Yeah, great, great to have worked with him, I'm sure. So, so 20 years previously, you'd worked with James Hunt, and you explained to that as earlier on, but here you are now, uh, both, uh, both effectively journalists. He's now working yeah. for the BBC doing the, the, the Grand Prix programme. Yeah. So second time around, how was your relationship with James? Different guy. James Hunt too. Uh, he was fantastic because he, when he retired, he disappeared for a while. And it, what he couldn't bear was being recognised wherever he went as James Hunt. He just wanted to be James Hunt regular guy. And of course, if you're a world champion, you can't do that. But he, and that's what he found difficult to cope with. But he came back then, as you say, for the BBC. And he became one of us. He became a journalist. And he was also, his money had gone, so he was like us as well. He was broke. And, and, and he was scrounging meals with us, you know, who, who's doing the freebie tonight, boy? And we'd, 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 we'd go to Marlborough, whoever it was. And he was just a different guy. We had such a laugh together. Um, be on the phone for half an hour, gossiping. Mm. Um, you know, my wife at the time would say, because my office was attached to the kitchen, and she'd say, you don't have to tell me who you've been on with. That was Bloomin' James, wasn't it? I could hear the gales of laughter coming from your office. <laughs> yeah, be, be rude about somebody. Yeah, that's right, that would be James. Really fantastic guy, totally different to the mm. bloke that I couldn't wait to see retire in 1979. Sure, and arguably cast in a similar mould to uh, James Hunt was, of course, uh, Eddie Irvine, another fairly mercurial character. So you, you worked with him on a book, and he had quite a reputation. How, how did you get on with Irvine doing his book? Well, obviously, we're in the same part of the world, six, born six miles apart, um, and we speak the same language in every respect. I got on really well with him um, because uh, he had, but my colleagues didn't, uh, because he could be very brusque with them. And as you know, Harry, um, one of the Irish ways, that if you like somebody, you, you, the expression we use is you slag them off. You're rude, to, you're rude about them. But that actually means we quite like you, believe it or not. And I told Alan Henry and Nigel Roebuck and David Tremaine, you know, look, he'll slag you off, he'll be rude to you, don't take offence, you know. And of course he was, and they did. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Nigel Roebuck never forgave him, never, never got on with him. Nigel yeah. just couldn't get on with him. Yeah. I said, it's all right, it's all right, he actually quite likes you. Go, what, are you kidding? Yeah. But we got on really well. But when it came to doing his book, uh, I was a bit concerned because I thought, you know, it requires a lot of work. If you're going to ghost a book with somebody, uh, you need their time, they need to turn up, they need to devote an hour and a half of going through everything. I thought this could be a bit tricky with Irv, who's always out and about having a good time. And in actual fact, he was the one chasing me if I was late. You're late, come on. Where were you? All right, I've already been sitting here hours waiting for you, you know, come on, I've got to do this book, haven't I? All right, okay. And he was brilliant and, and uh, a pleasure to work with. But yeah, a, a real renegade. But saying all that, of all the drivers I've met, one of the sharpest, brightest guys. He liked to yeah. pretend that he was a bit stupid. And I, he's, I, he's I, knew, I knew Eddie well in his early career as well, and, you know, and he, um, he, he liked to sort of play the, the playboy image, etc. But yeah. deep down, he was deadly serious about his career, and obviously that was reflected in uh, the way in which he worked with you in a very professional way when, when you were doing the book with him. Very much so. And yeah, and you speak to Ross Brown or anybody like that, and they say when it came to the nitty gritty of driving the car, he was 100%. So the Brooklyn's member's president is, of course, Damon Hill, and uh, I was speaking with him on a Friday night at the dinner, so he apologises for not being here. He would have certainly been here, but he had to go to Brazil uh, for the... As uh, you do. 
for the uh, for, for, for for the Grand Prix. So I think you wrote uh, you worked with Damon on, on on two books. First of all, a, a book about one season, but then his actual full autobiography. Then uh, some years later. Yes, this picture was taken uh, on the roof of the is it the Hilton or the Hyatt Hotel in Adelaide on the morning after he'd lost the championship to Michael Schumacher. And we had been doing a diary book, a book for the whole season, of the 94 season. And it was a book to come out before Christmas, believe it or not. So we'd been published and proofread as the season went on. And literally, as soon as we'd done the final interview, uh, it was sent back. I flew back with it, went straight to the publishers. It was set, typeset, proofread, and out. It was turned around very quickly. But the point about this picture is that um, I, Damon knew that I would have to go through uh, the previous days, the race, the weekend with him. And he'd been out that night with Barry Sheen and his mates and he just to forget all about it. And when we sat in this quiet, air-conditioned hotel room and he started talking about it, I realised it was the first time he'd actually brought himself to talk about what happened mm -hmm. uh, on that lap, particularly with I, Michael. I remember it well. I, I got up in the middle of the night uh, to, to, to watch it and remember Schumacher taking him out and his, his anguish was obviously very clear to see that night. Yeah. And what Damon didn't know was that when Michael went wide and hit, hit the wall, Damon was just that little bit behind. And when he came around the corner, he saw Michael on the grass. He thought he just had a moment on the grass. It was only after the race when Barry Sheen, who was doing working for Channel 9, I think it was, in Australia, got him to rerun the tape. And Damon saw that Michael hit the wall. He just jumped out of his seat and said, fuck, he hit the wall. I didn't know that. I didn't know that. Yeah. So he, he didn't have to attempt the pass? No, in other words, if he'd known Schumacher that, he would, wouldn't have finished? Correct. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, so we had to go through, we went through all this the next morning, as so you can imagine, there was a lot of soul searching. Um, mm -hmm. But uh, yeah, he did the job. Mm -hmm. So, as I mentioned, then quite a few years later, then you did Damon's uh, his, his, his full autobiography. I was, I was reading it the other, e other evening then. So, how, how was it like working with Damon then in, in, in that era? This was the most extraordinary experience because I'd been, me and my publishing agent had been on to him for a long time. Come on, Damon, you must do another book. No, I don't know, I don't think so. And he's very much like that. And then suddenly I got a, I think it was a, a text saying, okay, how about this book, question mark? So I rang immediately. He said, yeah, come on, let's do it. So I went straight over to his house. He was living uh, over Farnham Way at that time. And uh, we started. And the normal procedure is that uh, we do an hour and a half. is about as much as anybody can take on either side of taping. And then I go away, I transcribe it. And then I would write it up into Damon speak or whoever the driver is, give it back to them and they'd adjust it and, and add to it. In this case, Damon said, yeah, we'll do that, but just transcribe it, uh, let me work on it. And that book that you see, apart from a little nudge from me here and there, he wrote all of it, apart from two chapters which I did, he did 90% of that book. Mm -hmm. And the writing was superb. Mm -hmm. And of course, during the course of it all, I discovered he's got a first in, in English. Which I, which it, after you retired, which I didn't know, but when you read the book, it explains it. So he did that. It wasn't wasn't me. I just like to be able to say it was, but it wasn't. Yeah, yeah. It's an excellent book, certainly for those that experienced his uh, his seasons through through, yeah. through his career. So we, we have another bit of an over, overlap, career overlap. I used to work for uh, Eddie Jordan um, before he was famous, as it were, when Eddie was running Formula Ford cars and Formula 3s. I was working for him. And uh, the guy on the right, of course, also from Coleraine, like, like, like I am, Gar Gary Anderson. So um, back to the subject of Guinness. 
Um, so yeah, so you, d you did a couple of books with uh, with Eddie Jordan as well. So how how was he like to work with? Um, unpredictable, exciting, uh, funny, maddening, um, all of those things. Um, so the, we, this, this is the book you wrote on, again on, on, on a season then you did? That's right. We did, I was flying the wall, it was the second one of two I did. And uh, fair play to Jordan. They, they allowed me in, they let me make notes. I was in at every action all the way through. And they didn't blanch because in, in this is 98, this book, and they were having a really bad season up to Monaco to the point where the publisher was, was talking about pulling it, which I was horrified about, but luckily we persuaded them. This book should have been a hardback, and they reduced it to a softback because they just didn't think it was going to work. And then, lo and behold, they got a 1-2 in the Belgian Grand Prix. Wow. And I'm right there in the middle of the whole thing. So it was a wonderful experience. And on that trip, each Grand Prix I went to, I would take a different angle. So I would go with the caterers one week, I would go with the mechanics another week, a Grand Prix. Uh, I would go with the engineers another Grand Prix, and so on. On the, on the weekend of the Belgian Grand Prix, I was with the truckies. And I, we drove back, I'll never forget it, we drove back on the Monday, and all these cars were passing and waving and cheering and everywhere we went. Yeah. It was just the most fantastic thing. And I also remember the, the mechanics were in a, in a, in a minivan. Uh, <coughs> they were behind us and they overtook. And um, uh, shall I just say that when the minibus overtook, blew its horn, all the mechanics were mooning at the <laughs> truck driver as, as we went by. No, I think, think we'll draw the line there. Yeah, think, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So you, you also wrote Eddie's uh, autobiography, rather, than Independent oh. Man. What, 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 what did Eddie make of that book when it was done? If, if you see Eddie Jordan and you take up an Independent Man and ask him to sign it, he tells you he wrote it. It's bullshit. <laughs> 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 He thinks he wrote it. He didn't. He didn't write any of it. I mean, I, I had to rewrite everything that he did. It was just, uh, he would ramble. So you'd, you'd say, right, Eddie, we're going to talk about Formula 3. Yeah, right. Okay, yeah, right. And so he'd start talking about Formula 3. And you know what? I tell you what, that fella in Ireland, and off he'll go with the story. You'd have to bring him back and I'll carry on Formula 3. And do you know, your man there, have you ever seen him recently? No, and off he'd go and bring him back. What would be an hour's worth, should be an hour's worth, it would be five hours by the time he'd finished. And you have to narrow it down. He would just talk on. But we got it done. But it was... Um, it's, a, it's a good read, yeah. Yeah. He doesn't mention me, I must admit. But, uh, I, I, I can't imagine that. I wasn't, I wasn't a major part of his, uh, his team at those, in those days. So, yeah, so Sir, 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 Sir Jackie Stewart, was celebrated his uh, 80th birthday uh, this year. So you worked with him uh, a fair bit over the years as well. Yeah, I did. Um, I mean, here, this is a... A lovely thing for me in that I would stand by the fence at uh, Silverstone at 67 British Grand Prix watching him heave the H16 BRM through Maggots and Beckett's as a fan to get to know him um, in 1976. Ian Young got me alongside him when he was doing work for Elf, a uh, lap of the Nürburgring in a BMW, not a fast lap, just explaining it, um, to getting to know him, to uh, doing a lot of um, columns with him and stuff like that. And then when he started up his team, mm -hmm. uh, he very kindly allowed me to be in right from the birth of the team. So this was unique, you know, there'd been team stories before, but I was there right from the start, from the talking, the finding the sponsors, the pulling everybody together, the design of the car, the first test um, at um, Airfield in Essex mm -hmm. um, that Ford used, the name escapes me, oh. that's the one. And um, right through to the, uh, to the whole season, wonderful experience. And again, he would look over my shoulder, but he never, he just he would wince at some of the stuff. 
everybody to say, oh, no, okay, all right, okay, no, that's all right. I did say that. You're right. Okay. So, so it gave you editorial freedom? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So I was, I was reading a bit of Ian Young's autobiography the other, the other evening, and you, you, of course, are mentioned in it. And uh, he, uh, like many of the British journalists, you had a bit of a love-hate relationship with uh, Nigel Mansell. <laughs> so the th I think the story he tells is that you, you, through the 82 season, you, you, the gang of five, as he calls it, the, the journalist that you've mentioned earlier on, you, you, you yeah. tried to avoid N Nigel, but then he was racing in, in Indy cars in Mil Milwaukee. Mm. Tell, tell us the story of what, what happened. Yeah, we'd, we, I had a long-off relationship with Nigel, I have to say. Um, which included in 92 him threatening to throw me into the harbour at Monaco because of something I'd written. <laughs> and, and he's a big boy. You know, you don't want to sort of get too much on the wrong side of him. But um, so when he went to IndyCar racing, we, I loved IndyCar racing at that particular time. And we went over because I could write about him for the newspaper. Um, but he didn't want to really talk to him. And uh, so happened that Ian Young could see us coming to the paddock, he'd see Nigel and he saw our paths were going to meet and we met and we had to be polite and Ian was in taking pictures of us all being friendly together, which of course was the last thing we wanted. So no, no greater motor racing legend than uh, of course uh, Enzo Ferrari, so you, uh, you, you managed to meet him in, in, in his office by the looks of things. So. It's a British press audience. And I mean, a more orchestrated thing you could never wish to see. It was all, Mr. Ferrari may be able to see you, but we're not quite sure. You may just have to wait, can you wait in the ante room here? He's still busy. And then he'd be, he'd be allowed into this quite dark room. And he, he, he had a translator, because he couldn't speak English, which of course he could speak enough. And he would have all the questions, he'd have all the answers off Pat. Who's your favorite driver, Mr. Ferrari? Collins, Peter Collins, and you go, okay, yes, the biggest driver, and so on. Yeah. But it was a hell of an experience, and it was, there, there was a lot of charisma coming from this one man, there's no doubt about it, added to by all the acolytes all around him. Yeah, he, he sort of lived, lived the legend a bit, didn't he? He did, yeah, yeah. no yeah. question, yeah. So, so one of the other perks of being a, a motor, motor racing journalist is that uh, you do get to go on some pretty, uh, pretty exciting car rides um, from, uh, from time to time. This seems to be some uh, Renault Le Mans car. This is the Le Mans winning Renault from 1978 at uh, Paul Ricardo, uh, Renault Presto, Didier Peroni. But look, I'm wearing a, a woolen top. I've got a lap and diagonal belt on, for crying out loud. In, yeah, but I mean, it wasn't going to stop me getting in the car. And, and uh, we're using the uh, short circuit at Ricard, and, and there's this twisting bit, and DDA's powering it through and sliding it, and just it's wonderful. And we go up through scene, which he takes almost flat, and then there's a right that follows where you have to break down to about second again. He's on the brake, and suddenly the back end of the car just goes left, right, and all over the place, and he holds it, and we slide around the corner. And there's René Arnoux, parked on the verge with the Formula One car, just blown his engine, and he's going. Because <laughs> there's no marshals, nothing. And we get in and Didier says, oh, I'm sorry about the oil. And I said, you did a wonderful job. It was fine. Thank you very much. <laughs> so beautiful Ferrari. I'm sure that is on uh, most people's lists of, uh, of, of, of favourite cars. What's the, what's, what's the history behind this? This is you in it again. So yeah, with Chris Amon, Ferrari 330p4, owned by a man called David Clark. Um, and uh, Autocar Magazine and Peter Windsor had the idea of getting Eamon reunited with the Ferrari at Oulton Park and I managed to blag my way into it and get a lap with Chris around Oulton Park in that car, which was just A, to be with Chris Eamon, B, in that car. The noise, just all you imagine it to be. Mm -hmm. Absolutely fantastic experience. Beautiful, beautiful experience. 
So I haven't seen it out for a while, but of course the uh, the famous uh, two-seat Formula One car. So yeah, you managed to, to blag a couple of rides in that then as, as well. So who's, yeah. who, who's driving here and where, where are you? Well, the first one was with Martin Brundle and this one was with John Lacey at uh, Abu Dhabi. And uh, so uh, Lacey's going to be our driver. There's a couple of journalists there. And as it happens, the previous evening I have dinner with Lacey and, and uh, Johnny Herbert. And there's a series of corners at Abu Dhabi three rights that get tighter and tighter and tighter. And the third one is just before you've got to really get on the brakes for another right. And Johnny says to Jean, you can't take that last one flat. And, 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 and Jean says, oh yes, I can, I can. And, um, and Johnny says, no, you can't. And it so happens that Jean says, you, first with me in the car, okay? So we go out and the guy, the marshal is in charge, says, one out lap, one fast lap, one in lap, because there's a lot of people to get there. Okay, okay, okay. So we go, we do the out lap, and then we do the fast lap, and we're coming up to the third right. Although you can't see, I know it's coming, I'm looking out. And he just goes into it, and he has to lift. And then he breaks. So I thought, oh, well, that's that. We go around, he starts another lap, doesn't he? <laughs> and I think, I know what's coming here. <laughs> He's going to have a go. And sure enough, in we go one, to end the third one, and he takes it flat. But then we're going far too fast for the next tight right. And you know at Abu Dhabi, there's all that lovely turquoise paint along the side. He leaves black marks on it, completely crossed up, sideways over the curb, power on, leaves a mess of the thing. And when we get in, the guy is going mental when we get back in. And he's waving his clipboard and so on. And Sean says, I had to do it. I had to do it. I had to do it. <laughs> and here he's telling me all about it. Yeah, debriefing after a pretty, yeah. uh, pretty exciting ride. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so here we have Hamilton and Hamilton. Um, so what did, you, uh, what, did, what did you make of Lewis's driving? Oh, it's just, this is wet, in the wet at Silverstone, in an AMG something or other. Um, and, I mean, th these guys just play with the cars, Harry. They're just uh -huh. toying with it while they're uh -huh. talking to you uh -huh. and making the car do exactly what they want it to do. You know, it's just uh -huh. Uh -huh. magic. They're, you're in another world with them, and this is going through Stowe, and we're sideways in the wet. And he's just chatting and just, you know... Very casual, it's, yeah, yeah it, it, it really, what it does, it's a shame that not everybody can do this because it, people who say, oh, it's easy being a Grand Prix driver, a racing driver, put them in a car like that and you appreciate just what it is they can do. This extra sense, they've got this attachment to the car. Mm -hmm, it, mm -hmm. And that was a wonderful expression of it. So we're, we're sort of digressing from your own story a little bit, but I think we, we have to kind of touch on it really. You know, I've been reading a lot of, recently over the last uh, few weeks that Hamilton has now elevated himself to, to the all-time greats. People are talking him in the same breath as Senna and Schumacher, etc. I mean, is it, is it just about statistics? Is it just about racking up race wins? Or do you, you agree that he's up in, in that category now? Well, I mean, obviously, Harry, statistics do mean quite a bit. You can't ignore six world championships. No matter how they're won, it's six world championships. What impresses me so much, I, he is, to answer your question, yes, he is one of the greats. Because to do that, to do it consistently, that's the thing. I mean, he's in his 13th season. It's his ongoing one. desire that's extraordinary, it is. isn't it? Yeah. I mean, look at that last race, the, the last race at the Circuit of Americas. He wanted to win it. I mean, he could have been sixth, seventh, but still won the championship. He wanted to beat his team. The hunger is there. It's, and that's, it's been non-stop, so mm -hmm. that's, that's what makes him so that, impressive to me. Certainly one thing that sets him apart. So, um, away from uh, the racetracks and onto the, uh, the, the rally stages then, you uh, developed yeah. a very uh, competent reputation as being a, a rally navigator. So how, how, did, how did you get started in that uh, line of the sport? It's something I'd always wanted to do. I'd, I'd, <clears throat> since watching the Circuit of Ireland as a, as a lad, I'd always been 
fascinated by what the co-driver does with their stopwatches and clipboards and stuff. And uh, Tony Jardine in 1996 said to me, look, said I, I do the, the Rally GB, I take journalists as, as co-drivers, do you want to have a go? And I said, yeah, I do. And we did it and we, we won our class that year and we, we did lots of rallies and culminating, one of the best ones was this one, which is Donegal. Um, Donegal International, which is a fantastic rally, closed roads in, in Northern Ireland, tarmac. And we had an ex-works uh, Skoda. And this thing was quick. I mean, water-cooled brakes, eight-speed box, mm -hmm. a whole sequence of, uh, of starting the thing. And, it, and on these roads, it, that was so impressive. So impressive. Lovely car. Brilliant. And, and you went on then to have some... Uh uh, considerable success then with uh, with Tony Jardine. We did. We won our class uh, twice. Finished. We finished every one that we did, um, and we did all sorts of rallies. We did the Manx Rally and all sorts. But yeah, uh, it, because you, when you're doing that, you can't think of anything else. Mm -hmm. When you're when you're co-driving, there's no forget all the other work cares and moves and whatever else you're doing. Yeah, yeah. You're focused, and it's very challenging. Great. Yeah, yeah, well, a couple of my co-drivers are here in the audience tonight, so they, uh, they, they know... They're the ones like. drinking scotch out the back of the room, aren't they? <laughs> we, we must do a rally together sometime, Morris. When you're ready. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, I've got on, on my shelf at home, I've got lots of books that you've written about uh, James Hunt and Frank Williams and the Williams teams and, 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 and so forth. Over, over 30 books you've written. Are there, are there any books that are, are kind of standouts for you over, over, over the years? Well, there'll always be books that mean a lot to you personally, and uh, I have to say, one that I really loved doing was one in Ken Turrell, um, because he had, as I said earlier, uh, being established down the road from where I was starting off with Ian Young, um, he was kind of like a surrogate dad to me in many ways, and he would be quite gruff, but the phone would ring, you know, you'd write a piece, and the phone would ring, and he wouldn't announce himself. He'd just say, good column, click. <laughs> <laughs> or it would be ringing and you go, absolute rubbish. <laughs> what, what did you write that for? Well, I what, 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 see you at Monza, click. It was just, <laughs> but uh, he'd always put you straight, just a fantastic guy to work with. So when he passed on, he, he would never, I kept saying, Ken, we must do a book. Why do why would anybody want to read me? Why do read about me? That was typical Ken. When he sadly passed on, then I went to the sons, Kenneth and Bobby, and said, look, I'd really like, yeah, yeah, and they said, do it. And the nice thing was that um, Nora, who passed on six months after Ken, I was able to talk to her and get the full story. So it was, um, yeah, yes. I, I, it meant a lot to me, that book. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, yeah, certainly a spe special book for you, given his relationship, or your relationship with him. Now, we mentioned uh, this character earlier on. I think we can uh, reveal tonight that you've just completed uh, the definitive biography of, of Nicky Lauda, just in yeah. the last few weeks. Yeah. Um, th this is... Um, <clears throat> I had no intention of writing this book at all. And uh, when he passed away, um, I was struck by the tributes to him, not just the ones you'd expect from those of us in motorsport, but from the outside world, about how big his name was and how revered he was in, in many walks of life. And my publishing agent, who really doesn't know a lot about motor racing, rang me with the same thought. He said, have you read all this? I said, yeah, I have. And he said, you've got lots of interviews, haven't you? I said, yeah, I have. I've got lots of stuff. And he said, well, what do you think? I said, yeah. 
So I'd love to write something about him because there hasn't been a book in English about him since To Helen Back, which was... And that, that was his own book. That's right, an autobiography, yeah. which was actually translated into English. Yeah. Uh, not very well, correctly. Mm -hmm. It didn't have the clipped lot of way of speaking, you know. It was, it was very polite English, which I thought... <laughs> That's not Nicky. But anyway, uh, I, have, I said, I'll do all these, because I've got all these, yes, what do you want to know? Okay, boop, boop. And, um, and he would start something, you'd ask him a question. It's very simple, and then he would explain it in such simple terms. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, wonderful stuff. But I thought, the first thing I've got to do is get the family on board before I approach people. And I went to um, his two boys, uh, to Lucas and Matthias, and said, do you mind... I've known your dad, da da da, and they said, go for it. And with that backing, I've interviewed, I've, I've just finished, the deadline was two weeks ago, and I interviewed 35 different people about him yeah, who've known him. Material. And not a single, I mean, I know people wouldn't say anything after the man's dead, but there is genuine affection around some wonderful <laughs> stories about what he got up to. Really wonderful so, stories. But, but we're, we're all greatly looking forward to reading it, Morris. So when, when does it actually come uh, out? Spring. It's coming out on the anniversary of his death, which is May the 20th okay, next year. Okay, not for, not for quite a while then. Okay. Yeah. So we'll look forward to reading that one. So yeah, so the, obviously we've talked about many of your uh, your career highs over the uh, over the last forty years in Formula One, Morris. But uh, you know, it's 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 a tough gig as well. It's not particularly well paid and so forth. I mean, there must have been some uh, pretty pretty low lows at times as well over, over over the years. And what was it that kind of kept you going and kept you on your on your on your target through those those bad times? Well, I suppose the the worst time was um, trying to get into motorsport, trying to get into journalism somehow uh, in the um, early to mid-70s, and just apparently just going nowhere. And I was living in a flat in um, West Ealing and wondering, how, how do I do this? How do I get involved? How do I, how, because it, it was who you knew. You had to be in, and I wasn't in. And um, I was quite depressed about it. And uh, a friend of my dad, uh, who's a bookseller in Belfast, I was home, and he gave me this book here about Rudolf Cracciola. And he said, you might like to read that. I said, okay, fine. Because I said, I know of him, but I don't know a lot about him. I read this book, and I don't know if you know the story about Rudolf Cracciola, but it is absolutely extraordinary about a guy who came from a humble background. He sold cars for Mercedes. He then persuaded them to give him one to take to a, a short club meeting. And he won, and he won everything. He then started to drive Grand Prix cars for Mercedes. Then they pulled out, just as he was coming good. He went to Alfa Romeo. They pulled out, just as he was coming good. He then teamed up with Louis Chiron, and they bought a car, I think an Alfa themselves. And he crashed, Cracciola crashed at Monaco, at uh, Tabac, into the wall, and did horrendous injuries, shattered his right leg and his thigh. And in those days, of course, there was uh, none of the medical backup that we have today, no physio, nothing. I mean, to the point where when they got him out of the car, they sat him in a chair in the, in the tobacco, waiting for him. And the ambulance went across cobbled streets. And they, they did what they could. They put him in plaster. It was all they knew what to do. And the plaster would be on for four months. And he didn't know whether he'd be able to walk, never mind drive a racing car again, which is all he wanted to do. And he went up to the Swiss Alps, to, to recuperate, they took the plaster off, took a look, and put it back on again for another three months. And while he's there, his wife is killed in an avalanche. So, when the plaster is finally removed, 
This man doesn't know whether he can walk, never mind drive a racing car. Well, he was in great pain. He got back and he drove, even though it was painful it was a, every time he accelerated and braked, particularly when he braked with his, right, with his right leg. And he won Grand Prix after Grand Prix. There was no world championship in those days, but he was the European world champion, which is the equivalent of today's world championship. He was the man. And co co coincidentally, we actually saw this picture of uh, a photograph of Cracciola for sale at the back here for um, £85. And uh, this is actually him racing a Merc. Now, yeah. This would have been after the accident. After the accident. After the accident. Yeah, yeah. 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 Um, what a glorious picture, all the oil coming down. But, but he was the man. He was the best and a modest, nice guy. And he, and he lived to, he, he died a natural death. So, why am I telling you this story? Well, uh, I read the book and then I remembered what he had written in the very first chapter. And chapter one, he started off by saying, it is my belief that everyone can achieve the goal he or she strives for. I also believe that every man whose desire for a certain vocation is strong enough will ultimately get his wish, no matter how circuitous the manner in which this comes about. So I read that, I wrote it out, uh, I put it on the wall of my office and it's still there because that to me is the motto that uh, he taught me if you, if you want to do it, if you really, really want to do it, you can do it. And I thought, right, I've got to do this and that just drove me on. So that's the, been the, 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 the message I have. Inspiration for, uh, for all, all those years then, Morris? Yes, it has. Well, thank you very much, Morris. Thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen. That was uh, 40 years of Formula One with uh, Morris Hamilton. Okay. Sure the plan Harry, you caught questions. me a bit by surprise then. I was in, enjoying it so much that... Uh, but thank you, Morris. Pleasure. pleasure Absolute pleasure to have you here. Now, I'm sure, ladies and gentlemen, there are some questions that... Uh, or some subject that Morris has not covered. Who'd like to be the first? Yes, they're in the front row. Here. There you go. Should be on. I've thought of several questions, but I'll only have to ask the one. Um, Obviously, in your career, you've seen Formula 1 change indescribably from the dangerous days of James Hunt and through to 34 cars, pre-qualifying, all yeah. that excitement, end centre arriving, that, the whole gamut. And now we've got less of a grid, much more technology and a different, a different animal altogether. How do you see the future of Formula 1 and, and does it bear any relevance to what it was? How long have you got? Yeah, um... I, I don't know which way it's going to go. I mean, it, it faces all sorts of problems with uh, ecology, with whether they're supposed to be uh, more eco-friendly or, or is, it, is, it, is, it, is it technical or should it be uh, entertainment? These are all problems that they've, they've got to sort out. Uh, all I know is that I consider myself, as do I think a, a lot of people in this room, and a lot of old faces I know, mechanics here, and it's lovely to see you, and thank you for coming, um, that we lived through the best times. We were so lucky um, because it was much more free and easy. Today, it's just so regimented. Uh, I mean, from a journalist's point of view, it's, it's, it's all sound bites. And I mean, if I can just give you one example, uh, I refer to James Hunt. So if you wanted to interview a driver in the 70s or 80s even, you would go up to him, indeed, as I did with Ayrton Senna in uh, 85. 
you go up to them and say, excuse me, look, um, if you didn't know them, I represent so-and-so. Could I do an interview with you it's for such and such a magazine? Um, can I see you at the next race or tomorrow or whenever? And they would say yes or no, and they would eventually, you might have to wait. Sometimes you might go through a weekend and not get to see them because they're busy and there's no regime. But when you did get to see them, it would be one-to-one -one and it would be for an hour and it would be off the record if they knew you well enough and so on. Today, if you want to talk to Lewis Hamilton, I'm not just picking him out, it could be any of the Formula One drivers, you have to apply to the PR. PR didn't exist in 76, uh, in the 70s and 80s. You have to apply to the PR person or the press officer for that team. There were no press officers for the, for the, for the teams back then. And tell them what you want, why you want to speak to them, where it's going to go. And they will say, yeah, okay, if you come to uh, Monza on Thursday, he will see you between 12 minutes past four and 18 minutes past four. You know? <laughs> and they would see you, but it would be just sound bite. And the other thing is that you would put your tape recorder down on the table and the press officer would put his or her tape recorder down on the table. So the driver knows that he can't tell you anything off the record because it's all been recorded. So, you know, it's, it's, it's lost all its soul in, in that respect. And I cannot see that changing. That's, I'm afraid... Never come back? No, it's never going to come back, no. Another question, ladies and gentlemen. Given your time uh, in the industry, Eccleston, saint or sinner? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sitting on the fence here, he's a bit of both. Um, the saint is that uh, I actually have to thank him uh, for being here to talk to you because he made motorsport, Formula One, the desirable sport that it is from the point of view of the media. He raised its profile with televising, he knew what he was doing. Um, the sinner aspect is that he pissed a lot of people off he would be very blunt. You'd have to write to him if you wanted to take your wife to the Grand Prix. Please, can I have, you know. And, and there are stories that are going to come out of the woodwork probably when the man passes away where people will have been right royally reamed by him. Um, and if you even read his biographies, you know. So he was a nasty piece of work in some respects. But uh, saying all of that, uh, I always kept him at arm's length uh, and always referred to him as Mr. E., and always got on well with him, because I'd like to think there was a little bit of mutual respect. And if he thought you were all right, you, you were okay. So he, he did a lot for the sport, but there was a lot of things that he didn't, that I didn't like. For example, uh, the paddock, the way it, it, it was made so isolationist, where the public weren't allowed in, where he didn't care about the public. I hated that. I hated the fact that um, he, you know, they, they were, he put the fences up and, all right, you can't have people roaming the paddock like we used to have at Monza where it was like a, uh, a Wild West show back in the day. But uh, he took it to the other extreme. I'm glad to say that um, uh, Liberty Media have now backed, come back that and brought the public more in because Bernie didn't know anything about it. He didn't know how social media worked. Hadn't a clue. Not a clue. Mm -hmm. So, you know, he had a lot of faults. But he did do a lot for the profile and image of Formula One. Mm -hmm. Another question, ladies and gentlemen. Yes, sir. Uh, good evening, Morris. Thank you very much for a fascinating evening. Pleasure. Thank you. Entertainment. So, so entertaining. Um, what I wanted to ask you was about another of your compatriots who you may have mentioned once 
Um, John Watson. Uh, I, too, blagged my way to Monaco, my first Formula One race um, <coughs> in 73, when he was driving for Hexagon of Highgate, I think, in a Brabham. Uh, sorry, I'm getting carried away here. Um, but I put him also in, um, when he moved to Penske, eventually, and um, he drove the Penske car to a maiden victory in Austria. And I think that puts him in quite an exclusive category to drive a car from, you know, virgin to victory. <coughs> Must use that title later. Um, <laughs> anyway, that's it. Have you got a, any, anything to tell us, please? Yes, uh, yes. Um, when it comes to Formula One drivers, there is no question in my mind that John Watson is one of the most naturally gifted drivers that I've seen. The trouble is, he was too nice a guy and he wasn't hard enough. Um, I saw him race Crossley sports cars at Kirkuson when I used to go to club just with my dad, and this guy turned up, and the car would be immaculately prepared, and he would have clean overalls on, and he would drive beautifully. Just, you could see the way he drove. He was head and shoulders above everybody in Irish club racing. I mean, so good that we couldn't wait to see him get into the international scene. And of course, when he arrived at Thruxton, uh, in the Team Ireland Lotus 48. I mean, he just blew their doors off till the thing broke and, and went on from there. Uh, and, you know, he won five Grand Prix. Um, and his, his, the problem he had was he, he, he had Nicky Lauda as his teammate. And, of course, uh, Nicky, oh, yeah, okay, the Irishman, no problem, okay. You know, Prost, shit, he's quick. You know, so he, but even though uh, John would be as quick, Nicky did his head in. Um, and John was a bit suspect in that respect. Um, and also, he made a bit of a mistake when uh, he was at McLaren and um, Prost arrived for 84, because John was holding out for the big money. And Nicky, to be fair to Nicky, Nicky told him, John, take what Ron's offering, because you never know what might happen. And John thought, no, no, no. And then suddenly Prost came on the market. And John's out of a drive. And that's the story of, of John's life. But a superb, I mean, really superb driver. But just a bit of a doubter, a bit of a worrier. Um, but a wonderfully nice guy. Uh, too, nice. too nice, yeah, I'm but afraid. It, it, was, it was a spectacularly bad career move, wasn't it? Because, of course, McLaren just then went into the absolute golden era and, yeah. and, and won everything for the, for the next several years. It was just a, a real disastrous career decision. It was, correct. correct. Okay, now, um, I'm sure I'm, I'll come to you in a moment. Howard's going to hate me for this, but you probably some of you recognise Howard. Howard Moore was James Hunt's chief mechanic back in '76. <laughs> he might speak to me afterwards. I don't know. <laughs> so you wanted him. Morris, thank you very much for a wonderful uh, talk. Thank you. Um, following that similar theme to the previous question, Tommy Byrne. Hmm. Um, wonderful film I watched recently. Yeah. And uh, one thing that sticks in my mind about the film was a lap that was shown of him testing a McLaren to see whether he was yeah. up to speed. And it was a wonderful lap. Um, but of course, you know, the rest of the film tells you um, more about his character, but I was just wondering if you ever had an opportunity to speak to him. Yeah, quite a bit. Um, I sat beside him on a flight to Las Vegas, I think it was, and um, Tommy was his own worst enemy. 
That was the problem. Uh, he was just so bullshy, but he'd come from a very, very humble background and he'd clawed his way up and done fantastic things and in, unbelievably quick, blindingly quick. But he liked to tell you about it and he, and he wouldn't listen to people and he had this sort of, because of the way life had been, the way life had treated him, he just wouldn't listen to anybody. And um, he, he got up people's noses, I'm afraid, including Ron Dennis, which I think comes to the point you're talking about, because that lap was apparently very, very impressive, but it kind of never got picked up. And I, I was around working in Formula 3 in those days for Eddie, Eddie Jordan, so I was kind of there when that was all going on, you know, and there, there's, there's rumours even to this day that the McLaren boys actually re reduced the lap time, I mean, he was actually even quicker than, that, than, the, than, the, than the published lap time. So it, was a, it was a real story of what, what might have been. Yes, because he had to, they had to test him because he'd won the Formula 3 championship and the prize was a Formula 1 test with McLaren, so they had, to, they had to go through with it. Mm -hmm. And so this cocky little fellow comes up and it's not quite Ron's cup of tea. Great shame. One more question, ladies and gentlemen, if there is one. Um, you see many great drivers. Who surprised you the most when they came on the scene at the start of the season? You looked at them and I thought they're never going to crack it and they actually did crack it. You surprised you? Um, well, my old friend Nigel Mansell, to be honest, um, yeah. when, when he arrived with uh, Colin Chapman as the man I had faith in him and his early days in Lotus, you know, he did the odd blinding thing like was third quickest at Monaco and so on. But overall you thought, oh, I don't know, is he, is he going to make it? And then when Williams had the patience with him, and then he just developed into this incredible driver. And I mean, talk to Patrick Head. Patrick doesn't suffer fools gladly. And Patrick rates him really, really highly as one of his drivers because just of what he could do, the way he could physically take control of that car. And he was, yeah, he, I would say, uh, my friend Peter Windsor always thought could see greatness in him and I couldn't. And I take my hat off to Peter because uh, Nigel definitely proved that he had it. Again, a little bit of his own worst enemy as a, as a person out of the car, but that's another story. Um, as a guy, in his early days, I thought he just kept crashing, pushing too hard. Um, he just thought, you, you're never going to make it. And, and he did, I'm pleased to say. Because, of course, when Nigel made it, um, I have to say, that was, for the British press, that was fantastic news. Because mm -hmm. it was, whenever Nigel turned up, there was always a story. If it wasn't for him arguing with Nelson Piquet, or doing something to upset Patrick, or as it happened in Detroit, and you know you won't believe this, but it's true, he limped into the pit lane and said, what's happened, Nigel? Oh, dropped the, he pulled the drawer, bottom drawer out of the chest of drawers and it dropped on his toe. And you think, I, only Nigel could do that. And he turned the switch off in Montreal, didn't he? Oh, well, that was, yes, uh, that was a bit unfortunate, that one. Um, yes, with the semi-automatic gearbox, and he was waving to the crowd, and he didn't, he didn't change down, and the, it, it died. And uh, he blamed the gearbox, which Patrick was not pleased about. <laughs> not ple because at that time, just a quick aside to that, at that time, um, it, 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 the, the thing just died, and so he couldn't get it going again, and he lost the race. And Nelson Piquet won it, and as he said, he wet himself as he drove past, and he saw Nigel part. But uh, the next race was Mexico. And at that time, we had... Um, um, you could listen in to the radio frequencies. This is before they started to scramble it. When oh. I've been to Radio Shack in Detroit and bought this and found, found all the frequencies. And I happened to have Williams. And I happened to hear Patrick say uh, to Nigel on the grid as they're about to start the next race, you know, um, Patrick said, have a good one, Nigel. 
All of it, Nigel, and walk away. <laughs> Brilliant. Ladies and gentlemen, Morris Hamilton. Before we do the raffle, Morris, yes. we'd like you to accept this piece of 1908 genuine track from here. Oh, wonderful. Thank you so It'll much. be an addition to your office. Thank, Thank you. you so much That's for being here. It's my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. It's 1907, actually.